You're listening to episode 69 of the Journey to Launch podcast. Single mom, amazing story from $100,000 in debt to having over $500,000 in savings. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. So happy to have you here. And this episode, as always, I'm excited to share with you. And it's kind of special because this guest was actually found by my mom. <laughs> so my mom is like my biggest supporter in life and everything. She listens to every episode of the podcast. And when she really, really likes an episode, she will tell me. And she came across this article and this is what I guess the title of the article was this single mom mastermind 700,000 swing from debt to savings. So she sent me this article and said, have you heard of this? And I usually do hear, you know, with these like big numbers and these articles that are about saving tons of money, typically like I usually see them around. But when I went to go look at the article, I'd never seen that article before. I've never heard this person's story. So I was really intrigued because if you don't know already, I love getting guests that are not on every podcast. <laughs> now, there's definitely a benefit to having a seasoned guest who has been around or who knows the podcast circuit and can do really great interviews. But I really find the interviews where the person has not done a podcast, so it could be a little risky, right? Like, okay, will they be comfortable sharing? Will the conversation go well? But I just love bringing these stories that you typically won't hear or you haven't heard before. And luckily, this guest, Takaya, did such an amazing job. And I hope you do enjoy this conversation because we get into how she was able to go from a single mom who was barely hanging on in tons and tons of debt to being able to be financially free. And basically, she was able to quit her job and work on her own terms. So you'll get to hear more of that as we get into the conversation but super excited to bring it to you because, again, my mom is the one who told me about it. And it's so funny because I do act quickly. So she sent me the article. After I read it, I was like, oh, this is amazing. Then I went to find the person. So I looked her up, looked on Facebook, realized she also had a blog. And then probably within 30 minutes of my mom sending me the article, I reached out, asked her to be on the podcast, and she accepted. And I believe it was two days later that we recorded the interview. So excited to have you hear about Takaya Dory. Before we get into it, if you want to hear any of the things we talk about, some of the links, even to read the article where I first read about, you can go to the show notes for this episode at journeytolaunch.com slash episode 69. Also, if you want to at me on social media, let me know what you're thinking of the episode. You can do that at Journey to Launch. Make sure you're following me there. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this, especially if you're listening to this in Apple Podcasts. Also, stick around for the end. I have a little story to tell you about something that happened to me over the past couple days, and it had something to do with Entrepreneur Magazine. So if you have not heard that yet, the story, if you're not following me on social media or if you're not on my newsletter, because I did share a bit about what happened, stick around. I want to go over it with you this whole thing about me, quote unquote, versus Entrepreneur Magazine. <laughs> All right. So without further ado, 
Let's get into this amazing conversation. Hey, 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 journeyers. I'm really, really excited to bring this conversation to you. I have on the podcast Takaya Anderson. Hi, Takaya. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good. Listeners already heard me give a little background and I am so excited to talk to you because my mom is actually the person who forwarded me your article. Oh, cool. Awesome. And she was just like, have you heard of this person? I was like, oh my gosh, no. And so I immediately reached out to you and she was so surprised because I literally like wrote her back five minutes. It was like, I'm getting her on the podcast. (laughs) Immediately, I tracked you down and found you because I thought your story was so interesting and I wanted to learn more. So the title of the headline that I saw was, this single mom was drowning in debt, now has $500,000 in savings. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so I had to find out, Journeyers, I had to bring her on the show to talk to her, to, to find out what she did, to find out her story. Because whenever I know I see like big numbers, like those headlines, because I had headlines like that myself, there's so much more meat, so much more background to the story that I know will help a lot of people. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so first things first. You were able to pay off a lot of debt, and now you swung from a negative net worth to having a large amount and saving. So let's talk a little bit about how you first got into the debt, and then we'll go back into your background, and we'll get all into the juicy stuff. Okay. I am a licensed attorney, so the debt primarily came from attending law school. I started law school back in 1996, and I graduated in 1999. Everyone knows that law school or any sort of graduate school really is expensive. It's not as expensive then as it is now, but after three years, the amount that I actually borrowed every year or the amount of the tuition came up to about $98,000. And then by the time I graduated, it was up to $111,000. And I also became a single parent during that time. So, in addition to just taking out loans just to cover, tuition, basic living expenses, I also had to add in her living expenses for her also. So it just kept on going on and on. And then that doesn't also include the fact that I had a car note, I had credit card debt. It's not just the 100000 plus of student loans. There was also credit card debt and there was also car loans. So it was like by the time I graduated, I actually didn't even have a job when I graduated. So I didn't have a job. I had an almost two-year-old kid and Truly, I did not know what I was going to do. I wasn't that concerned. I figured everything would work itself out, but I'm sure I should have been a lot more concerned considering Mm -hmm. I had zero assets and all that debt, but everything worked itself out. But that's actually how I accumulated all that in terms of student loan debt. So how much debt when you graduated, what was that, 1999? Yes. When you graduated at that point, how much debt did you have altogether? I tried to go back and look and see as far back that I could with Sally Mae. I would say that with the capitalized interest, I had about $111,000 in student loan debt. I had a car that I had paid for before I went to law school, and I still owed about $2,500 on that. So that wasn't a lot of money. But when you have nothing, that is a lot of money. And I have this unfortunate addiction to credit cards. And so I know that I had at least $10,000 worth of credit cards. And I've had several times where I've racked my credit card bills up to $15,000 and then I paid them back down. So trying to even 
calculate and total how much money I actually was in debt. It's like depressing, but that's how it was. So 15000 at least for student loans. I had about 2500 for a car and then the rest of it, well, $111,000 of student loans. Credit cards was about 15000 and then 2500 I would say, for my car, no. Mm-hmm. So it looks like you didn't get really any scholarships or anything to help you through your law degree, right? I did. And that's the sad thing. (laughs) Yeah. But it didn't cover everything. No. And again, because I would have to get special permission from my law school in order to get additional funding. So as a graduate student, you get more funding. And so the more dependents you have, the more money they give you. So for me, I should have only as a grad student gotten about nine or ten thousand dollars for living expenses they allowed for me to take out between eleven and twelve thousand dollars. So even though that's only a couple of thousand dollars extra, it just started all adding up. And over a three year period of time, that just continues to blossom in volume. So yeah. Right. And let me just get back to your mindset at that point. Was it at the time you just really weren't even thinking about the debt that you were accumulating? You were just worried about getting through law school, raising your daughter? Like did you even have a clue what was happening with your debt at that time? No. Ever since I was eight years old, I wanted to be a lawyer. So when I finally was like, yes, I got into law school, I got into a great law school. When you go to law school or you want to be a lawyer, you always think to yourself, this is the sort of life that I want. So I want to be some corporate lawyer. I'm assuming I'm going to make a lot of money. Like pregnancy was never in the picture. So I never thought about it. And it's really interesting because even at the end of when you're in your third year or your last year, you're considered a 3L. And you have to have an exit interview with the financial aid officer. And I was talking, me and my friends were talking because none of us had jobs. And I said, you know, they told me I owe whatever it was, a hundred and something. And I just had a big smile on my face. I don't think that even at that age, I just didn't have a concept as to how it was going to get paid. They didn't even dawn on me and I didn't have a plan of action. I figured it would take care of itself. I knew that I could do a deferment for six months. That's all I knew. I said, I'll figure it out. But something sparked in me where I was like, this is not going to be good because my daughter will be going to college. I had already always, ever since she was a child, I spoke that over her, that you were going to be going to college. I happened to attend Howard University, HBCU. I was like, I want you to go to an HBCU. You know, I'm talking to this to a two-year-old kid who has no idea what I'm talking about, but it just wasn't going to make sense. I was like, I can't be paying off my student loans and trying to help you pay for yours. So mm-hmm. I need to figure something out. Let me just also ask your age, if you can share when you graduated from law school. I was 22 years old when I graduated from college. And then I was 24 going on 25 when I started law school. So I was yeah 27 when I actually graduated. And then this is just a quick aside. Did you have debt going into law school? Like, did you have, okay, so you really, you started out, no debt, graduated all that debt, and then you had an aha moment. At what point was it like immediately after graduation that you said to yourself, hold up, this is a problem, I need to fix this? No, because it wasn't immediately after graduation, because I don't think that I really understood the ramifications of how much money I had taken out. Even for me, and it's funny, because I talked to people in terms of how I budgeted eventually or whatever, but for me, Back then, I never even opened up my bills. I was terrified. So it's kind of like I just ignored it. Whatever payment plan Sally made, and even I had a $25,000 loan from my law school, which they deferred almost indefinitely because I explained to them, I don't have anything. Like I can barely pay Sally May and my rent at the time. So they were really good about just letting me hang on. And But I'd never had any concept. 
I guess it didn't dawn on me until a like you get tired of being broke all the time. And I even referred to in the article how I lived in overdraft protection. And that was I had $600 in overdraft protection, which means that if I go over my balance, I'm not getting any sort of overdraft fees. And every single pay period, once I started working, I was constantly so something was off. And I'm like, I'm tired of being broke. And again, I don't want to sit here and be spending 20, 30 years trying to pay this back. So I have to figure something out. And even though I was a low wage earner and anybody who asked me, I don't remember all my numbers, but I definitely remember how much my starting salary was. And that was $34,102. And I looked at, you have $34,102 as an income and you have over six figures of debt. Something has to happen. Let me just interject. What did you graduate doing? Like, where did you start working? I started with a local agency called the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination. I was only making $15 an hour and I stayed there for two months. I have a family member who had a client. She does hair and she said, oh, I have this client who works for the Department of Labor. She's a district director and they're looking to hire attorneys. And I was like, oh, awesome. I went down there, filled out my application and about three months later, they called me in for an interview. So I started my first day in the federal government on October 25th, 1999. And so that's how it started. How did you start to increase your income or make changes? Like you were living in overdraft protection. Like how do you get out of it? So the way that the federal government works is that there's just these GS levels and steps. So I was a GS level nine at that point in time. And the starting salary was $34,102. The next year I was to go to a GS 11. And then the year after that, I would go to a GS 12. So $34,000 went into about $43,000 and then $43,000 went into about $53,000. And so I was basically stagnant at that $53,000, like that was it. So in two years, my income increased $20,000, but I wasn't really budgeting that well. And all the expenses relating to my daughter, like she was just going on two when I graduated. So by the time I started making some money, then I have her in preschool and that's expensive. So to me, it felt like I was never catching a break. Like I would end up with more money, but I had to also spend more money and primarily in order to take care of her, which is no fault of her own, but that's just how it was. Eventually, I ended up buying the house that I grew up in. And that was by force because I have an identical twin sister and she owned the house. And she told me I was paying $400 a month in rent. She told me she don't want to be a landlord anymore, that I had to buy the house. And I'm like, well, I don't have money for that. And she said, well, you're either going to have to buy it or I'm going to sell it. You guys owned it together or she had owned it? She owned it. She bought it from my parents. It's the house that we grew up in. My parents bought this house when we were 10, my mother and my stepfather. My mother and my stepfather got married when we were nine, bought a house when we were 10 years old. My parents sold it to my twin and then my twin sold it to me. So when I was at the $44,000 level, she sold it to me. My rent to her, because her mortgage wasn't that high. I think she only paid like thirty dollars or $40,000 for it from my parents. So when I bought it, my expenses went from $400 to $700 a month in terms of paying for living expenses in terms of a mortgage. And that was a struggle for me. And I tried to explain that to her, like, I can barely afford what I'm giving you, but I had to do what I had to do. And so at some point in time, the market started increasing everywhere. And so I had purchased my home for $94,000 and my mortgage was only $700 a month. So once I started seeing all the increases and I saw how much the houses were going for in my neighborhood, I 
started doing more research or I started doing research and I was like, hey, people are doing cash out. They're taking cash out of their houses, but everyone was taking cash out of their houses in order to go on trips and to buy BMWs. But that wasn't my game plan. And I remember when I called the mortgage company or a mortgage company, explained to them that I wanted to take money out of my house. And he said, where are you going to go buy a BMW? And I was like, no, I'm trying to pay off my student loan. And he said, you're the first person that has ever said that. He said, everybody is buying cars. Everyone's taking trips. I said, no, I just want to pay off at least one of my student loans and at least part of this credit card bill. And I will be happy. And that's how I was able to reduce some of my expenses. And I have a lot of people, especially on my blog, they'll say, well, that's why you were able to get out of debt that fast. No, because I don't think that people also have to understand that my daughter was also an increasing expense. So again, to me, it wasn't like I took a break. It was like that was a necessary thing. Mm -hmm. I want to hop in and kind of dig deeper in some of this stuff because it's really fascinating. So you bought the house and your mortgage or your Expenses went up a bit, but then the real estate boom was happening. Prices were increasing. Your house gained some equity. You decided to take out a home equity loan. And how much was that loan? The loan was for 159000 So that bought it from like a $94,000 to, I believe, 159 I think. So my mortgage went from $700 a month to $1,100 a month. So I'm assuming that the interest rate on your mortgage was less than your all your combined payments on your debt that you, you paid off. Yes. Even though I'm doing the math, you increased your mortgage payment by $400. Yes. You probably were paying a lot more yes. in your monthly bills. Yes, at least six or $700 because I wouldn't have made any sense. Like I needed a cushion and I was like, even if I only saved... $200 a month, that's fine with me. I just have to have a cushion. And it was just easier for me to pay the $1,100 and then just deal with, I still owed Sally Mae. I still had a bar loan. So that's also wasn't factored. And I had to take out a loan in order to take my bar examination. So I still had loans and I still had the credit cards and I just still had debt. When you paid off majority of your debt, how much was left after you did this move of taking out the home equity loan? I honestly don't remember. I would say that I think I only cut it in half because I definitely know my last year, basically 2006 or 2007, I only had about $34,000 left. So I believe that I still had almost half. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I had about 50. You had kind of a credit card problem, a spending problem. You had an income problem. You had expense problem. You had a lot of restrictions and barriers to you getting ahead. But you did find a creative way. You used the market. You used this asset that you had as a home to help pay that off. What were some of the other things that you were doing? Like, I'm really trying to get to how it is that you were even able to pay off the rest of this now, even though you were still on a constricted income. The unfortunate thing is that even though I had gotten out of a good deal of the debt by the house... I had no concept of budgeting. I didn't cut back on a lot of spending. Like really honestly, I didn't have money anyway. So people would come to my house. I had no internet. I had no cable. Like there was no such thing as having internet and cable. I didn't get internet and cable in my house until I actually finished paying off all my debt back in 2009. So me and my daughter, I would do just DVDs. I would do VHS because we still were living. We were coming on the, off the cusp of having a VCR and then going into DVD. And I remember 
when DVD players were like all the rage and I I didn't buy one because I couldn't afford it. In my mind, like I always felt like I couldn't afford it because if I'm living in overdraft protection, even when I stopped living in the whole overdraft protection, I didn't have that much money left over anyway. So things like a DVD was not important to me. I was going to figure out how to have fun and how to finance things without it. So I didn't do a lot of shopping. Like I just cut back on a lot of things. I did the basic essential. And what was even crazier was once I started focusing on that last about $35,000, I set me and my daughter up on a, and people think it's crazy. And I did it $25 a month entertainment budget. And so I told her, I was like, look, she was about nine years old at the time. And I said, I'm really, really, really trying to take care of the last, last of this debt. We are not going to be going out like we did because we still would go out, but I wouldn't spend a lot of money. Like I would always shop clearance, but to me, I was shopping too much, even if it was clearance. And I said, we have enough clothes. I really want to focus on this. So $25 a month budget, I would figure out things to do. We were living in Philadelphia at that time. So if I wanted to take her out to breakfast, the only way that we would go out to breakfast is if I found a coupon from IHOP. There was a supermarket that was up the street from us. And every Friday they had $5 extra large pizzas. So maybe once in a while we would do that. I started packing lunches. I made my own coffee. I didn't really give her any money for school lunches. She had to bring her own school lunch. Like everything was cut out. Everything was cut out. So that way I focused on paying off this debt. Being in the federal government, when I was there, we used to get bonuses based upon our performance evaluation. So I probably wouldn't get any more than about eight or $900 net. And I would use that to pay off a debt. And anytime, like when I would get my increases, I would always use the extra money. So I obviously knew how much of my net income I had. And so I would look and say, okay, now you're going to be bringing home an additional $200 a month. And I acted like I never had it. So all that money was always going to a debt, always. Right. You got really intense, really focused. I'm just so impressed at that drive because people will say that they want to get out of debt and it's a burden and they don't really make the necessary changes. Some people, they want to enjoy life and enjoy probably what everyone else is doing because I'm sure you knew people who had debt too and they weren't doing what you were doing. So was that hard for you to make those sacrifices? knowing that maybe you had some friends that were going out to eat or your daughter's friends might have been living a more luxurious life? Like, did she notice that at all? How were you able to maintain that kind of intensity in your budget at that point? Because I had a goal in mind. And for me, it was what I was doing and what I was going through was going to be temporary. And that's all that I looked at it as. And I never really compared myself to other people because I was in a different circumstance. I'm a single mom. So for me, I have friends that aren't single moms. I have some friends that are single moms and they have dads that do a lot more. And so I wasn't in that circumstance. I never really got jealous because I knew at the end of the day that I would be able to do those things. And I have been able to do those things. So there was a couple of times where I remember my sister has a daughter and my sister wanted all of us to go out to dinner. And I told my sister, it's not in my budget. You waited till the last minute. She's like, you're telling me that you can't pay like $40 and come out. I was like, I absolutely cannot. So I did. I mean, I got some people upset. And even in dating relationships, I would focus all the time on I can't do this or I'm really focused on paying off my debt. And I know that 
my ex-boyfriend, it annoyed him how much I talked about trying to get out of debt and how I didn't really want to do too much that cost me anything because I wanted to get out of debt. And it's interesting because today I showed him the article and he was like, wow, he was like, you were really serious. And I said, yes, mm-hmm. I was absolutely. Mm-hmm. I said, so when you would get frustrated and upset, I said, you have to understand also, I can't rely on anybody. So unless you were going to pay for my daughter to go to college, I have to do what I need to do. And I just wanted it taken care of. I didn't know how long it was going to take. Even if it took me 12 years to get out of debt versus the nine years, it didn't matter to me. I just didn't want to be at the same time still paying it off when I knew that she was going to college. That's all that mattered to me. It's interesting because I was also raised by a single mom and my mom now, and I have a partner who's really helpful and an equal partner and financially is there, like physically is there. But regardless, not that if you don't have a child, you don't have this motivation, but they bring out a different type of motivation in you when you're a mother, because even if something doesn't seem feasible, but if it's going to be something that you know that it will benefit your child or you want something different for your child, because the kind of drive you're describing is similar to what my mom went through in dragging and pushing her way through to get a better life and to put me on a better start. So I love that. And at this point, it seems like it took you, what, nine or 10 years to really pay everything off? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Were you really just focused on debt? At what point did you start saving and investing for retirement and getting this, this savings account or investment account to be so much money? That's a good question. The whole entire time, except for about two years, I was contributing to my retirement. I was contributing to my daughter's 529 plan. And I was still paying off debt. I one day heard Dave Ramsey and he was talking about taking, stopping contributions for two years. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a good idea because it was fine for me because I was like, you know, that's extra money. So once I paid that all all off, then once I was free and clear from the debt, and which was interesting was that by the time I paid off my debt, I had wasn't even making a six figure. So I was making like, in the 90s. And I know for a lot of people, that's a lot of money. So I went from 34000 to about 90000 But again... In nine years? How long did that take you to do? Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So I started with the federal government in 1999. And when I started in the 90000 I was still at eight years into the federal government was mm-hmm. when I got my promotion. But I was still... But I paid off the majority of it by that time. So by the time I hit my six figures... I had cleared out my debt. So at that point in time, that was when it was like, okay, now you're going to have to do the IRS max. So the IRS max at that point in time, I believe was 16.5. And so I just kept saving. And then I just kept putting money aside. I also explained to my daughter, I was like, hey, now that we're out of debt, we can kind of start taking vacation. So I said, once a year, we're going to find some place to go whether or not it's we're going to do an in-state vacation and then we're going to do an out-of-state vacation, but I'm going to save for it. So I've never had debt associated with a vacation ever in over 10 years. Like I save for that. I put everything aside, I everything. So um, once the, and it's obviously once you don't have that sort of debt and you're also making a decent income, I had a good amount of money. So again, I didn't spend. Like I never went out and was like, hey, I'm going to go and buy a BMW. I had the same Toyota Camry (laughs) and I drove it until it literally died on I-75 here in Georgia. I heard banging noises and I was like, oh (laughs) my God. I was like, please don't 
my daughter's like, mommy, I hear something. I was like, please don't let this car. And the mechanic was like, I told you it was dying. I was like, oh man. So I just never did. And whenever I would even look at apartments, I'm like, no, because I want to save money. Like I never wanted to be in a circumstance where I was spending a whole bunch of money on really anything I wanted to save. And I'm not cheap like that. I wanted to save money. Right. And you spent a lot of that period of time in your life. Not necessarily, it didn't seem like you were depriving yourself. It seems like your daughter were able to have some really nice experience and develop a a deep relationship. And it almost forced you to become frugal out of necessity. So it was part of you didn't like earn a lot. You had a goal. But then by the time you did make a lot of money or you were earning good money, you kept those habits, which then allowed you to keep all that extra income and start investing and saving it. You have people who are doing this. Sometimes I hear when people in the fire community talk about being frugal and saving. And then you have people who are low income or don't earn enough and they have no choice but to do the things that the people in maybe the fire movement are doing. Like they have to cut coupons and not go out to eat if they're being prudent with their money, right? There's no choice. So I find it really interesting that before you even knew that of the fire movement or this whole reaching financial independence, like you were just doing this out of necessity, but it puts you on this path to where now, I mean, we're going to talk about some of your goals and what you're looking to do now, but you are in such a great position because you chose to really hustle those 10 years of your life. I agree. I agree. (laughs) I agree. One thing that you mentioned, and I really like this in the article because I feel like a lot of parents, and this is, I mean, not just parents, but anyone who's looking to save for something can really get some inspiration from is that when you first started saving for your daughter's college fund, right? Yeah. You weren't saving a lot. The first year, it was $135 that you were able to start with for the year. That's like how much you could do. Yes, because in the article, he says, I put it in a drawer. I actually had a little glass canister or whatever. Like I had a glass jar. And when I was in high school, because Oprah wasn't on in 1999, 2000, but I used to watch her back in the 80s. And I remember, I don't know if it was Susie or I don't know who was on, but they were talking about spending your cash and putting change. So I was like, okay, because I don't have any money, let me start this. So when she was three years old, I started using cash and I would put change in there and I would even put dollar bills and half dollar bills. And after a year, counted it and it came up to $135. I already had a credit union account with my bank. And so I opened up one for her and I went in there and I said, hey, I have $135. I want to open up this for my daughter. She's um, at that point in time. By that time, she was four. Then I also asked them about, hey, this is my college account. And they said, this is a college account for her. I was like, for me, it is. It's, it's her college account. So they said, well, you know, you might want to invest in some educational CDs. So I started with $25 a pay period with the educational CDs. And I just kept putting money into it. And when I moved to... Georgia in 2009, I met a financial advisor through someone I actually connected with on a Facebook page. I've never met this lady, but she said, hey, I know somebody who's a financial advisor. Do you want to go talk to her? Yes. I go and I meet her and she says, you need to put the money into a 529 plan. So she said, stop doing in the educational CDs and let's just go ahead. And she explained to me how I opened it up. And that's what I did. Also, at that point in time, by the time I moved here, I was getting child support payments. But the good thing about it was also that I was finally, because I could afford everything and I had knocked out all the debt, I could take all of 
the child support payments, put that in the 529 plan. And then I started matching the child support payments Mm. dollar for dollar. Then I started doubling the match. I set it up in my account. And when I, I went through my payroll and I put down, I want this going to her 529 plan. So her dad would send me the money and I would direct it over there. And then I also opened up, let me start my emergency fund because my financial advisor was like, you need an emergency fund. And I just couldn't, because things always happen. And it's like, I'm like, and when she told me, you need to have 15,000, I'm like, I'm never going to get 15,000. And she's like, well, with your income, you should be able to. And I was like, not going to happen, not going to happen. And this is another thing that I want people to understand. When you have an emergency fund, I know that that seems like a big number, but you don't have to get it in two years, three years. It may take you some time. Like to me, it took me forever. You were also saving too at the same time, right? Correct. And that's another thing when she told me, oh, you can get this done in a year. And I'm thinking, I have a child that's in high school who's going to be going to college. I have prom fees. I have college applications. I have tours, everything. It took me a long time. Like it took me at least five or six years. To save up the emergency fund. Yes, because something would happen. I've owned a lot of houses in my life. I've been blessed to have owned five. And so you buy a house, things fall apart, something bursts, and it's like, okay, I have to dip back into the emergency fund. So it was always something. And sometimes I just couldn't contribute because even though I was out of debt, it was always something. So now you just threw in that you own five properties, right? You are a very ambitious woman. That time that you were talking about building yourself up, earning money, when did you also start investing in real estate? How did you know to do that? Well, I think part of it was a mistake. So when I lived in Boston, like I originally said that I bought the home that I grew up in from my sister. So maybe like two years went by and the neighborhood wasn't great. It wasn't great at all. And I didn't feel safe for my daughter. Like I wouldn't even let her go outside to play. So the unfortunate thing was Back then, anybody and everybody could get a loan. So I truly feel like at that point in time, I was only making $60,000 a year. And I know for a fact that I'm not going to say the mortgage company, but this particular mortgage company should have no way, no how given me a $240,000 mortgage with a $60,000 salary, but they did. And so I ended up renting out the first house and I went to the second house. And then I decided I didn't want to live in Boston anymore. So I sold both houses, moved to Maryland. A year later, I bought another house. Then I got the promotion to go to Philadelphia. So I sold that house. When I was in Philadelphia, I rented. When I came to Georgia, I rented for a year. Then I bought another house. Once my daughter graduated from high school in 2015, I put the house on the market. I always wanted to live in the city. So now I live in the actual city of Atlanta. And I told my realtor that I want to live in the city. I want to live in a gentrified area. And she didn't believe me. And I was like, I will do that. She didn't believe that you could accomplish that. She didn't believe that I would want to live in a gentrified area. I think that people have this idea that when you're an attorney, you seem like they feel like you should. I don't know what it is. I knew that she knew that I could because... One thing about me also is that I could always afford more, according to them, and I could, but I've never been that sort of person. So if you sit there and you are a mortgage officer and you approve me for a $300,000 house, I'm looking for something 240 and below, period. 
And I know that not everybody has that opportunity depending upon where they live, but I never, never will max out what they tell me because I don't want to be house poor and I want to live. And so with my circumstance, I explained to her what I was looking for. And in 2017, I bought this house. So I have a house now that I've been in ever since 2017. I have a low mortgage and I could drive Uber and I could pay for my mortgage. So Mm -hmm. that's how I just function. And it's a nice house. It's beautiful. You've been able to accomplish so much and it sounds like you're very resourceful and there were some risks that you took to get to where you are and it paid off. So now you have half a million dollars saved up. And as you were talking, I'm just thinking, how did you know how to do all those things? Whether it was, I know you said you got some inspiration from maybe Susie Orman and Oprah about the saving the change. And it seems like you also got some really good advice from a financial advisor. So it shows you just how important it is if you can find someone who can help you, yes. that can guide you, like can put you in such a better place. But how in general did you know to do any of this? I didn't. I just wanted to. And I'm not trying to be funny. Like my identical twin sister, she's owned as many houses as me. I don't remember ever having any sort of financial conversation with my parents. The only financial conversation that I remember was my stepfather when I got my first job out of college. And he told me, make sure that you invest in a retirement plan. And he was explaining to me about the history of 401ks. And maybe that did give leave an impression of how he wished he would have started investing earlier in a 401k, but they really weren't that knowledgeable about it. So I always knew that I needed to invest in a 401k. And so I always also knew that when people talk about retirement age, and I was surprised that people really consider 65 or 70 retirement age, like I feel like it's just too much. So I was like, I don't want to work until I'm 55, 60, 65. I don't want to do that. And my thing was always, I just have to continuously contribute as much as I can. And it wasn't like I had a specific age in my mind. Like I knew what I didn't want to work up until where everybody else was. I definitely don't want to work, don't want to work until I'm 62. If I work, it's going to be my choice. So that was kind of like my motivating factor. I wanted to be able to have a choice. I don't want to be stuck at a job. Working for the federal government for 20 years, you hear a lot of things from people, especially on the elevator. I remember listening to women who were in their 50s talking about how they have been working for the federal government for 40 years and they still have to stay for another 10 years because they haven't paid off their debt. And I remember in one instance, I interjected and I said, well, I'm not going to do that. I asked this lady, I said, can I ask you a question? And she said, yeah. I said, if you knew that you wanted to retire, why didn't you buy the house or buy the car years ago? And she says, well, I really didn't think about it. And I said, I'm not going to be that way. I understand that working is great, but I want to do it because I want to, and I want to do it in the manner in which I want to. So that was also a motivating factor for me. And of course, your daughter, right? Like your daughter is the underlying current that was pushing you along, it seems. And so now you were able to actually put your daughter through school the first three years, right? Mm -hmm. Amazing accomplishment. Was she able to not graduate with any debt or is she still in school? No, she has to take out a student loan this last year because I'm completely tapped out (laughs) at this point in time. And I was like, I did three years and I explained to her, you can take out the loan and I'll figure out how I can possibly pay it off, but she's good. We've talked about a lot of different things and she knows that I've done a lot for her because I don't do a lot for myself. And I feel like at the age of 47, I need to start living. So I'm like, a little debt isn't going to kill you. And definitely I will help you out. But right now I just want to experience life. 
And I'm sure she's learned a lot from watching you. I'm sure you actually had some of these conversations with her, knowing what you know now, helping her grow up to be more astute with her money. But it probably doesn't hurt for her also to kind of not struggle, right? But also to have some grit and to pay off her own debt. Like that's not a bad thing. It's not. As parents now, where we are in a better position, where we can help our kids out more, it's always that we were maybe so successful because we had to be. We had to struggle a little bit and Correct. we didn't like, have a lot, but we had some things that were helpful to us. And now our children are going to be in better positions than we were. Correct. But how do you instill them to have great worth ethics and grit if everything just comes easy, right? And you're paying for everything, right? I agree because people, they'll say, well, you're the frugal bitty. Clearly your daughter listens to what you have to say. And I just laugh because I'm like, she doesn't. So now it's to the point that I'm like, hey, I've been telling you, or we've been talking about finances and everything ever since you could actually understand. So I told her not to get a credit card. She gets a credit card and she runs it up. I paid it Mm -hmm. off. Then she ran it back up again. So I was like, oh no, not again. So she's going to learn her way. She's not horrible, but she's definitely not me. I would think that hopefully she gets on board pretty quickly. Hopefully, hopefully she'll, I think you have to learn things on your own sometimes. And no matter how much we maybe teach our children. So did you actually sit down and teach her how to budget? I tried to do that. I mean, I tried to do everything with her. I explained a lot of things about money as long as it's not her money. So if I'm spending it, it's completely fine. And that's like with, with every parent, but we've had conversations about things like she wanted to build her credit. And I explained to her, okay, great, go ahead and get a credit card, even though I don't necessarily believe that you need one, but make sure that you put gas on it and pay it off. She works. So she's just going to have to learn her lesson. I can't even explain it. Like at one point in time, I'm quite certain when she's 21 years old now. So I'm pretty certain in the next couple of years, she'll come back and she'll say, you were right. But she wants to do whatever she wants to do. And there's nothing I can do about it at this point in time. I truly did my best. She knows my circumstance and she'll figure it out. I would love to be like, my daughter saved all her money and she doesn't. When she gets a paycheck, it's gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to talk to you also about the whole financial independence movement, retiring early, that whole concept. You are in a great position yourself. And I'm sure you probably have some sort of a pension too. Yes, I do. Your job. What's your plan? Is this part of your goal to retire early? And when do you reach your financial independence mark? Do you have that all figured out? It's really, really interesting. I spoke to my financial advisor. And when I spoke to her, because I was like in a panic, because when I decided to retire from my job, I was like, I can't take it anymore. And I said, are you sure I'm in a good financial situation? And she was like, yes. So what she said to me is, you really only have to work or have enough income just to basically take care of your basic expenses. And I can do that in any form or fashion. She considers me to be semi-retired because she said you're in a different circumstance where you're not saving for retirement. She put me in a really, really good annuity. So I'll continue making a whole bunch of money on that. But she knows that I like to save because the first thing I said to her was, I want to start making more money so I can send you money. She was like, you don't need to do that, but I do. So long story short, what I plan on doing is once I get some things together For example, I still have a car note and I pay extra on my car note, which she doesn't agree with. But for me, she said, if it makes you feel better. And I was like, it does, because once I pay the car note off, then I'm going to take the car note and I'm going to send it to you. Because what I need to is that I can't get my money from her or from out of my annuity until I'm 59 and a half years old. I can't get my pension until I'm 62. 
So I said, I'll take my car note and I'll send it to you starting next year. You mean the payment of the car note, how much you were paying for it? Correct. I'll take the payment, the amount of my car note, and I will send it to you and then you can invest it. And within 10 years, I will have enough of a cushion that I will be able to stop working or even if I just want to do something here and there or whatever, but I want to, if I decide to stop working, at least I'll have two years or two and a half years between the time that I quote unquote, I guess, officially retire to when I can get my money out. And so that's my plan. But I'm an attorney. I do contract work, but I feel like the world is my oyster and there's a whole bunch of stuff. Like I even joke that I'll go to Puerto Rico and I'll do bike tours or whatever. Like I don't have to make a lot of money. Like my expenses are so minimal. I'm very truthful when I say that I can drive Uber and I can pay everything. You're still working for the federal government. Oh, no. No, you're not. Okay. So you're not working. You're doing contract work. Yes. But when you separated from them, you were able to keep your pension. Correct. With them. Yep. But now you're just working to on your own as a contract worker. So more freedom. You can choose when you work, it seems like. Correct which is why you said you're semi-retired. So that's excellent. And what I loved about your story is you said that that 10-year mark of sacrificing was temporary and you knew it was a bigger goal. And now you have so much more freedom in your life. Now your daughter, for the most part, is she's a grown woman now, right? So it's like she's going to be responsible for herself. So it's really just you that you need to worry about. And so it's a little bit more flexibility with your time also, which I'm sure feels amazing, like all that hard work. It is. And it's interesting because when you have a child, just like you were talking about your mom, and there's just certain things that you have to push through. So I've always wanted to do something different, but I have a child, so I can't just up and leave my job. There are plenty of times where I've been like, oh, I want to quit, but I can't. Mm -hmm. Again, she's an adult. I've gotten her to where she needs to get to. And I remember when I was before I decided to leave my federal government job, I remember sitting there and it was like, I was looking out the window because my minimal retirement age with the federal government was 58 years old. And I said, I can't do this for another 12 years. I can't. I was like, I cannot do this. Like, I want my life because there were things that I thought I wanted to try out, but I had a kid. I got pregnant when I was in law school. And so I can't do all the things that I possibly wanted to dream of and try different careers. And just so, yes, I do contract attorney work, but people hire me also to do all sorts of different things. And I'm like, this is fun. I can make so much money just working on something for someone for like five hours. And I'm like, wow, attorneys get paid this much money? Because even though my federal government salary was really good, but it's amazing how much attorneys make out. I want to do different things and I don't want to be cornered into anything. I just want to live my life. Like I'd love to take my frugal bitty. And I know that I want to teach financial literacy. That's one of the definite things that I want to do. I want to be able to impart knowledge onto people because I feel like I understand both ends of the spectrum. I understand what it's like to be not that wealthy. I had to go on food stamps when I was in law school. I was on WIC when I was in law school. I had no idea that I would be in the situation that I'm in. If anybody would have ever told me back then I would have ever made a six-figure salary, not at all. If anybody would have ever told me you'll be able to pay off your student loan debt within nine years, I would have never believed them. So it's like I under, but even with me not making as much, I did the best that I could. And I know that And looking back, there were things that I know that I could have done better. I absolutely know that there were things that I, because I did a lot of foolish things and <laughs> with my money that I'm just embarrassed about. But there was a lot of stuff that I could have done better. 
But look at where you are now and such an inspiring story. The last thing I actually want to mention, because I'm thinking that there might be someone who is listening to you and saying, hey, I want to like find out how to do what you're doing, have some options and do some contract work. How did you find the situation you're in now? Are you working through like an agency? How did you get this set up? So a girlfriend of mine, when I told her, I don't want to go back to my job, I'm going to leave. And she said, well, you can do contract attorney work. And I was like, what is that? And so doesn't pay a lot, but it doesn't pay nearly what I made, but that didn't matter to me. But there are a lot of law agencies are kind of like companies that will hire, like for me, if I wanted to get an actual attorney job, like job placement places, there are employment placement agencies that actually have divisions where they hire contract attorneys. And so the contract attorneys come in and we just basically, it's called document review. There are some contract attorneys where you're actually doing research, you're writing things. It's really laid back, easy, pays the bills. I get health insurance. So for me, it works. But if anybody's interested in anything like that, if they're an attorney, there are opportunities out there. And one of the blessings is being an attorney. I'm not going to be unemployed. There's just a lot of stuff out there. So hopefully we can get some resources for the episode show notes okay, so that other people can tap in, check it out. And I just want to thank you so much, Takaya, for coming on and sharing your story. I know this will help a lot of people, give a lot of people some inspiration. There are some single moms listening. Absolutely. Or just people who are not earning a lot of money or who have the potential to earn money or who don't have it all figured out. But I think just hearing your story, how you were able to really sacrifice, do the work and to live the life that you're living now, that freedom, those options, like when you work. And I think it's going to be so helpful to so many people. So thank you so much. And let everyone know where they can find more about you. I am on Facebook and I'm The Frugal Biddy. I also have a website, www.thefrugalbitty.com. I do blog posting. I try to do at least two a week. I haven't been doing that because I'm kind of busy right now, but that's where they can follow me. I'm also on Instagram as The Frugal Biddy. I'm on Pinterest as The Frugal Biddy. So I'm, I'm everywhere. And for everybody, if you feel like you can't accomplish this, it's just my soapbox. Trust me, it'll get better. Just stick to it. And just believe in yourself. And those are like my words of advice. Because again, if I, I would have never, ever imagined that I would be in this situation ever. But you just have to commit and just stay focused. Awesome. Excellent. Thanks so much again. Thank you. I really, really hope you enjoyed that conversation. She has such an amazing story. And I knew immediately why my mom probably was drawn to being her story, because just that drive and that scrappiness and that will to do more and for her daughter. I know my mom, being that she was a single mom, could relate to that. And I, being a mom in general, can relate to the things you would do just so that you can give your child a better start. So Hope you enjoyed that episode. Again, if you want the episode show notes, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 69. If you're listening to this and you want to let me know what you thought of it, if you want to share this with your peoples, just take a screenshot of it. At me, put it on social media, Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, hashtag journeytolaunch, at me so I can see it and then share with your network, with your family and friends. Share with someone who you think needs this inspiration or to see what other people are doing to reach their financial goals. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about what happened more than a week ago with Entrepreneur Magazine. So if you are on my newsletter, you already saw this. I talked about this in my newsletter last week, and I did put it on social media a bit. 
But I just want to talk about what happened. So I wrote a story, an article for a online site. And this online site also is able to republish or syndicate content to other sites. So this article that I wrote, it was about quitting my six-figure job and why it was the best thing for my family. And you guys already know that. So if you have not listened to that episode where I talk more about that, you can go to episode 61. That's journeytolaunch.com slash episode 61. I talk about quitting my job and why I did it. So what happened with Entrepreneur Magazine was they picked up my article and they have this agreement with this other site that they can do that. And I didn't even know that they had picked it up. I found out because someone on Twitter, they added me and said, oh, I just read your article and I loved it. This was amazing. So when I went to the site and I saw my article, it was the article that I wrote, but the image was of a white family. And at first I was like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. That's fine because I actually understood or I would say I was not surprised that it was not me because I didn't directly submit this article to Entrepreneur. So they would not have known unless they did some research who wrote the article. And but I was excited to share it. So I started to share it, put it on my uh, Instagram and on Twitter. And immediately when I put it on Instagram, people were like, oh, congratulations, you know, because Entrepreneur is a big publication. And some people were just like, but wait a second, that doesn't look like you. (laughs) It was a stock photo of a family, but not only did they not use you, but they didn't use the correct race of the family. Obviously, when I first saw that article, I thought that too. So I put it on my Instagram. I made feed about, listen, like I'm excited to share this article. It was quoted here, but let me just go for a little background on probably why they didn't have the right person or family in terms of the depiction. And I would say it was important in this case because this was not a general how-to article. If this was an article that said how to save for your Christmas gifts or how to travel, then maybe it wouldn't matter really what stock photo they used and what the race was. But because this was a very personal article where here I am, my words, talking about quitting my job and why it was best for my family, it just seemed off just that it wasn't at least someone or a representation of what I actually look like. And I knew that when they first probably saw the word family, so whoever picked this up, they probably thought to themselves, hmm, we're just going to pick a family, the go-to family, the happy family. And that's what they picked. They picked a Caucasian, a white family. And for me, the reason why it's so important for the work that I do is because I realize that there needs to be more diverse voices in this space speaking up. Because one of the main, main things that allowed me to share my message or why I really wanted to share my message was when I started listening to podcasts, I didn't see too many people who looked like me or who sounded like me doing this. And I knew, I knew that if there was someone in the forefront showing people that, look, if you're black, if you're brown, it does not matter. You can do this too. It would be super important because this few times that I heard black voices and people of color on the podcast I was listening to, and it was very rare that I heard them, I was super inspired because I saw myself in them. And that's why I wanted to elevate Journey to Launch even more and have more people hear my story because I knew that I'd be able to encourage you listening that this is not out of your reach. You can do this too. That was why it was a little off because I felt like if they could update this picture that they should. So you guys went into motion. So if you don't know, go to my Instagram page, but I posted the picture and I also posted a picture of my actual family. So if you have not seen that yet and 
I typically don't like to share them that much because my kids are really young and it's a special part of my life. And I understand like now that I'm more out there in the media, it's probably going to get out more, but I really try to keep things private as much as I can. But I did share a picture of my family and everyone was like, oh, they should have used that picture. And they started to at entrepreneur and actually had someone email them. And I didn't tell anyone to do this, but you journeyers, you rallied, you got up and you said, no, this is not cool. You need to put either like Jamila's family there or at least a black family for this very personal article. Long story long, because I know this is getting a little long. (laughs) Entrepreneur got wind of it. So the editor in chief actually looked into it, responded, and he actually went on my post and said, Hey, and explained himself and said, you know what? This was not an article that we had, but we need to understand more also about why diversity matters in stock photos, which was so cool. So they did end up changing the picture to a black family, which I was so happy because we stood up and we rallied together and in a respectable way. I wasn't angry. I wasn't accusing anyone of doing this on purpose. I was just opening the dialogue and people were also just saying, hey, look, entrepreneur, you should do this. You need to change this picture. So I thought it unfolded really well from the point of there wasn't really much negativity. And I actually ended up reaching out. I emailed also the editor-in-chief and was just like, listen, like I'd love to just share my perspective on this a bit more. And so hopefully this can turn into me maybe writing an article for Entrepreneur about this kind of topic of diversity and why representation matters. So I'm super excited that this thing turned into something bigger than just me. It's bigger than me. It's more about being in a space where everyone and a lot of people who have not had a voice feel like they can see themselves in the success stories, in these stories of people who are saving money and getting out of debt. And it's not just about the bad. It's like a lot of good, too. And and I just think it's important for us to be aware of that, especially the big publications, to be able to do that. So I just wanted to share that with you. If you're on my social media, you probably saw it. Or if you're in my newsletter, you probably saw it. But if you're not on my social media, meaning you're not following me yet or you're not on my newsletter, that's why you should join because sometimes I'm able to share things quicker through that form. So anyway, I just want to thank you all again. I want to thank you, Journeyers, for really, really being so passionate about being so engaged. And really, you inspire me too. I get so many DMs and emails about the things that you're doing and how you're getting ahead and getting further on your financial independence journey. And it's truly, truly inspiring. So until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.